Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's the vibe I'm getting from these filmmakers, that they're like viewing the general public as kind of like, y'all wouldn't understand this. And then when they did, they were like, damn, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's right on the money. Welcome to episode 111 of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers and see if it still plays for today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm CEO and co-founder of Electrocast Media. I'm David Tausick. I'm Mark's co-host, and I have been a writer-director for many years, but now I'm on strike still. And I'm Grace Chapman. I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School and an aspiring screenwriter. I'm Guy Lewis. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I love movies. Hi, I'm Jake Flowers. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, studying entertainment business and I hope to pursue public relations. Hi, I'm Kylie LaRue. I'm a recent graduate of USC Film School, studying um, cinema and media studies, and I love movies. This past week, we watched a short and a feature from both ends of legendary surrealist filmmaker Louis Bunuel's career. His first film from 1929, Un Chien Andalou, and from 1972, his third to last movie, and that's out of 35 directing credits, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. So let's start with Unchien Andalou, which is known in English as Andalusian Dog. It runs about 16 or 22 minutes, depending the frame rate of whichever version you're watching. It was co-written and co-directed with surrealist painter Salvador Dali, who, like Bunuel, was a member of the surrealist movement of artists, writers, and musicians in 1920s Paris. The movie is in black and white and made cinema history as it opens with Bunuel himself sharpening a straight razor, and as a thin cloud slides over the moon, he appears to slice open a young woman's eyeball. It's disgusting. I mean, I, I recoil every time I see it. But what a way to start a directing career, to basically say, mm-hmm. I'm going to open up your eyeball. Yeah. yeah. All right. First question that I have, how many people here, this was their first time seeing the movie? Wow. Okay. I'm going to start with Kylie. Where did you first see this? I first saw it in my community college intro to film class. And then I also saw it for my international cinema class at SC. So this is essentially your third viewing. This is my first, I would say, 22 minute long one. The other ones were either like certain clips that are 12 minutes or a 16 minute version. Can you tell us what your feeling was like the first time you saw any of this movie compared to this time? I was shocked and then I was confused. 
the first time I was just like, I think I got it. I'm going to pretend like I did. And I'm going to research it a bunch. That way I can talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) How did you feel about it this time? I enjoyed it, but I still sometimes just find myself confused. Yeah. (laughs) Jake, what about you? This was your first time seeing it? Yeah, but in the past, I had seen little clips of it online, but I had never seen the film. So to kind of put those two together was interesting. I was also really confused, but like really intrigued. It was tough. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what was going on. I watched it twice. Um, I meant to watch it again today, hoping for some clarity. But uh, yeah, this one was over my head. <laughs> All right. That's fair enough. Let me ask you a question. Was there any one scene or shot in particular that stood out to you uh, and made an impression? The scene with the girl, was she blind? I don't don't know, but she had a stick and she was poking the hand on the ground. I kept trying to look to try to figure out what was going on. And and I read later, it was anti-narrative. That was this very androgynous woman, which I think was also kind of way ahead of its time, kind of early David Bowie or something. I also read that David Bowie had the viewers of his concert watch this film before he performed. Oh, yeah. He opened one of his tours with it Mm -hmm. in the 70s. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was also very confused. And just the first scene really put me in a weird mood because I I felt it in my eye. and, (laughs) (laughs) And I thought it was just so... Artful, I wasn't expecting to see him actually slice the eye because you see the cloud go over the moon and it's kind of like a metaphor for what he's doing. And I'm like, okay, thank God they're not going to show that. And then they did. And I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And it was very interesting to watch. A scene that really stands out to me is when he's holding the books and then they just turn to guns. I really liked that. I thought that was a great use of editing. Do you think there is any meaning behind that? I don't know anything about Bunuel, but from this film, I got the idea that he didn't really care about having a specific meaning. He was just like, look at this cool stuff he could do with these cameras. You know, it didn't necessarily have to be (laughs) like a narrative, which I thought was really, really cool because I've never seen anything like that, really. You know, it's a non-linear collection of imagery from, you know, the dark subconscious. But there still seems to be these uh, satiric moments where he's satirizing the male libido out of control, satirizing, it appears, the Catholic Church to some degree, uh, with a couple priests being dragged across the floor. The whole idea of film reality, I think the reverberations for this movie are felt in David Lynch films big time. And in the 1980s, when music videos started to happen and were on MTV every day, you know, for hours and hours and hours, so much inspiration from this. There's even a song by the Pixies called The Baser, which is based on Andalusian Dog. This scene that you just mentioned with the two priests, one of them being Salvador Dali, I guess. And then there's the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then he's dragging these pianos with dead donkeys on them. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? <laughs> but it was really interesting. Like when you wake up from a dream and you're like, what the hell? Like you could, there are things in there that really could mean something, but I think I just got the vibe that it was like. I think that, of course, you're going to try to find meaning in it. You can't not. It's like, that's what people do. They see things and they try to invent an explanation for it or a meaning or, you know, significance of some kind. And um, 
One of the things that uh, Dali and Buñuel are doing is trying to confound that, to make things that don't really have a connection, to try to not have meaning and to see how possible that is. And, you know, the answer is it's not really possible if you have images like this not to have meaning. You're going to read into it. Kylie, I want to give you a chance. What scene stood out to you? I think this viewing, it was when the moth then turns into the man's face and then the man's mouth turns into the woman's armpit hairscape. And then the woman realizes that he's taken her armpit hair. I love that. She's so mad. She sticks her (laughs) tongue out at him. And finally, that's what made her escape. Well, the other question, too, is, is the armpit hair actually a metaphor for other pubic hair? People have talked about that. But you couldn't go all that way in (laughs) 1929. I mean, they have images of a man touching the woman over her shirt, and then it turns into her naked, and he's holding her breasts, and then it turns like he's fondling her butt. And it just keeps dissolving into these different images. There's a lot of writing about how Boonwell and Hitchcock were the two greatest Freudians of 20th century cinema. That there's a lot of stuff about the mother and a lot of stuff about different fetishes and sublimation of sexual urges in different ways. Louis Boonwell, before Quentin Tarantino, was the first foot fetishist of the cinema. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you see the follow-up to this, this feature film they made called Large Door, which caused riots in Paris when they showed it. Um, there's a woman sucking the toe of a statue. It's almost like the extended cut of Andalusian Dog. And I used to say that Lage d'Or, The Golden Age, was my favorite movie of all time. It's, it's not there anymore. But Well, why would people write about a film? Were they just really sensitive and weird then? But um, to understand what it meant to criticize the church and the state back then, you know, we're talking about a time when war was on the horizon, where patriotism was being drummed up as a matter of maybe survival for a lot of countries, where, you know, the church had a great importance that had been slipping ever since. So uh, when Lodge Door came out, the theater was taken over by these two avowed fascist groups. One was the League of Patriots, and the other was the Anti-Jewish Youth Club. I don't know what they were protesting about. Buñuel was Catholic. He, there was nobody Jewish involved in Lodge Door. They destroyed the screen by pelting it with ink bottles, and then they ripped up surrealist paintings in the art gallery next door. These are politically motivated riots, where it's a cultural war, similar to what we're experiencing in the U.S., How come this movie, which none of us can make sense of, except in Freudian or symbolic ways, how come it feels like it holds together of a piece? Like, there's Mm -hmm. no part of it that I go like, that's embarrassing they put that on the screen. What a screw up. It somehow all feels like it works, even though Mm -hmm. there's no reason it should. It feels like an actual dream. Like, they really captured the dream environment. You know, I have a friend who complained about the movie Inception, which is all about dreams. He goes, dreams are not like that at all. Dreams don't work like that. And he was very negative about the movie. I won't out him. But <laughs> From that point of view, I agree with him. Dreams aren't like that. This is like the, you know, uh, dreams, like everything else, have been kind of commodified into this thing that actually ignores the reality of what they're like. Um, you know, in movies, dreams always have a message or, and dreams aren't like that. Dreams don't really have a message for you. I've, I've tried to interpret my dreams that way and it usually doesn't work. You know, every once in a while, you find a really interesting message to yourself. Yeah, exactly. But not always. The only person who can interpret your dream is yourself, you know, and I feel like the filmmakers 
had that in mind. They didn't want to like spoon feed anything to anyone. They were just like, you can make whatever sense of this that you want, which is really interesting to me. But I guess the conclusion I reached after a while, because I used to write down my dreams and sort of want to analyze them. And I started realizing my unconscious mind is not something that I'm going to agree with if I actually have to have like an argument with it. It's got its own way of doing things, its own way of thinking. And it's not so nice, you know, all the time. Uh, whereas I'm pretty nice consciously. So um, it's a different entity. Yeah, that's how the film is, too. I feel like if you could take any meaning from this short film at all, it's that humans have some repressed stuff going on that comes out in dreams. It's the kind of thing where you can get a camera and you can do that. You don't need, you know, a big professional outfit to make a movie like that. And that's very inspiring to me. I, I love that. All right. Listen, uh, I, I want to make sure we give plenty of time for our feature film. So Kylie, you did some research on both the making of Shannon Blue and the reception at the time. Would you care to enlighten us? Louis Brunel and Salvador Dali. This film actually got them accepted into the surrealist artistic domain, and they were officially approved as surrealists by said surrealists. But the, they filmed it and wrote it in a very short period of time. They wrote it after about a week, and then they started filming it in Paris, April 1929. And they released it thinking like, okay, like everyone's probably going to hate this movie. We just kind of did whatever. They, they got dead animals. They just wanted to make it the most unconventional thing possible, like trying really hard without trying really hard. And they just kind of wanted to put their dreams to life and try and make something that's going to provoke audiences more than anything else. Wow. The first student film. Did it work? Did it provoke <laughs> audiences? It did, but actually Salvador Dali is quoted as saying that he wishes the audience hated it more <laughs> and that made it less exciting didn't hate it enough because it was actually received so well the screening of it supposed to be in one screening in paris for a week or two actually ended up being extended to eight months um because everybody just wanted to see it in paris pablo picasso came to come see it and then obviously it has lived on and on and on yeah i think roger ebert called it the most famous short of all time which may be true mm -hmm. i think it's true B bigger than steamboat yeah. willie yeah that's right <laughs> So, Kylie, um, well, let me ask you this question. Maybe others can chime in as well. Do you think it deserves the kind of esteem, attention, and long life that it's had? I think it does. I wouldn't say this is something that I would run to go see again, but I do think it's something that challenges you, and it can challenge other filmmakers who want to see how they can make something unconventional and just something that doesn't have to be what they would call Oscar bait for people to watch it. You can make something crazy and wild. Interesting you mentioned Oscar bait because the feature film we're going to talk about, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, actually won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Only took uh, 51 years. but. And Buñuel <laughs> previously said, you know, I think the most repulsive thing that could ever happen to me is that I would win an Oscar. And uh, when he did win the Oscar, he was kind of appalled. He was kind of snobby about it, too. He said something like, who votes for this? Like the assistant wardrobe person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, guys, this is fantastic. And I think what's going to be real interesting is some of the things that we see in Chin and Lou. I think Louis Bunuel is bringing back or continuing throughout his career um, 53 years later. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie runs 102 minutes. It is in color and features some of the most famous and glamorous French actors of the era. 
It begins at night as two well-to-do couples arrive at the palatial home of a third couple for a dinner party, only to find that their host and hostess don't expect them until the following night. So begins the quest for these three wealthy couples, the titular bourgeoisie, to have a meal together, only to find their simple desire for a dinner or lunch party thwarted over and over again in increasingly absurd and dreamlike ways. The film satirizes third world diplomats, the church's complicity with the rich, the military, sexual lust, while remaining immaculately deadpan, even at its most funny, most horrific, and most sardonic. I'm assuming for everybody except for David, this is your first time seeing the movie. Is that right? Uh, This was actually my second. Well, I didn't finish it the first time. Uh, I fell asleep. I didn't realize (laughs) I had even seen it before until I put it on this time because I just put random stuff on to go to bed. (laughs) Um, But I was like, oh, my God, I remember most of this. I watched a lot of it until I fell asleep the first time. But it was interesting watching it. For the second time after watching the short film, can you pronounce it for me? <laughs> well, you can call it Andalusian Dog if you want to. Andalusian Dog, okay. Because then I, I realized kind of what it was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to make sense because the first time I saw it, I was like, I'm going to sleep. I cannot follow this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Grace, this is really interesting because essentially by falling asleep to it the first time, watching it a second time and realizing as if in a dream that you were seeing it for the second time. Exactly. Yeah, it was oh, really shit. it was really tripping me out. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, why don't we start with you then? What held your interest this time? What kept you from falling asleep besides having to watch it for the podcast? Did you find yourself more engaged? I did, and I think just realizing that it was supposed to be surrealist and not really make sense that grabbed my attention and also just realizing how Bunuel feels about dreams. Because my dreams are very similar. I always am trying to like get somewhere and it just doesn't happen. And it's like a reoccurring thing over and over and over. Not necessarily a dinner, but it was just really strange. I was like, they made this for me. Has anyone ever had that? Like, it's the first day of school and you can't quite get to class? Yes, all the time. Yep. Yeah. Or like I'm mm-hmm. late to class and I don't know like what period it is. And I'm like, I have not been in high school for so long. Why is this happening to me? (laughs) Guy, you said you watched this three times. Yeah, it was a rough uh, couple of days. Uh... (laughs) Did your experience change over the course of the three viewings? Right. So uh, I like to think I'm not stupid. and I, I think I'm movie smart. And this movie challenged all of that and i was like well maybe it's the language gap i mean maybe it's because it doesn't exactly translate so you went and learned french (laughs) no i didn't go out no i didn't do that yet so um (laughs) that's the next goal but then like i watched it the third time and i think i got a little bit more from it you know but then i don't know (laughs) 100 uh kylie your first time watching it yes Mm-hmm. And you got to see Shenandoah. You were prepared a little bit. This obviously is not as out there as Shenandoah. What was your uh, reaction to Discreet Charm? At first, I was a little hesitant. I think because I didn't quite understand the whole deadpan shtick, and obviously the characters were not very likable. When the there, he's constantly being called like Your Excellence by the driver. I was like, oh gosh, well, I like any of these characters already. I'm not sure. But I think what grabbed my interest was when they found the restaurant, they like demanded to come in, call the owner, 
as a hostess myself, I've heard that so many times. Like I've been the one at the door being like, we're closed. And finally, when they realized, you know, the owner like passed away and his literally his wife is grieving in there. I was like, oh, I, I think I could like this. It was that and the fashion of like the youngest wife. Those are my two favorite things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the owner is not only dead, but he's there in the restaurant. He's like lying. <laughs> yeah, they have like a wake for him. Do you remember that shot where the waiter's walking by with the candles, and the camera picks up on the waiter like a Hitchcock movie and follows him? And you're yeah. like, wait, what's this? What's? And then, and then they, they first they've told them not to come in, and now they're like, no, 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 stay. You'll have a great meal. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was just great. I was like, okay, this if it's going to be like this, I can keep doing this. Jake, what about you? This is your first time. What was your reaction and how long did it take you to get into the vibe of the movie if you got into it at all? I really got into it. I think the costuming always really pulls me into every film at first. So like Kylie was saying, the glamour was like forced on you and the ways that they behave. And then like this formal way of behaving around each other and standing up to cut the lamb. And just like all these things that normal people may not understand. So they were almost like portraying the bourgeoisie in this like grotesque, elitist light, which like made it super glamorous. And the fact that there was like drug money involved and like all these different things, it was like hard to watch. You know what I mean? Like I started to resent the characters. And then the priest shoots the guy he gives absolution to. I was like, hell yeah. But then I was also like, oh no. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> there were moments I had to pull myself out and remind myself that it was like this dream. And then I started to think about like some really fucked up dreams I've had where I woke up and I was like, did I just do that? It's like it's bringing out all the horrible parts of your brain that you don't want to like look at. And it's like putting it on a screen. You know, I, this is not one of those films where I'm going to ask you guys who your favorite character was, because I just think everybody <laughs> is kind of reprehensible. These people who are so glamorous. I mean, the women are gorgeous. They're all very urbane and sophisticated. Even though they're awful, they kind of are smart mm-hmm. about what's going on, I guess. They know stuff about the world, even though their attitudes about it are kind of assholeish. And they're in these really nice spaces. And then the other thing is, you know, the camera moves so beautifully in the movie. Like the movie doesn't waste time. Like things move fairly quickly. It's like on the money, like boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom. So there's something very charming about the movie and about the world, even though these characters are increasingly despicable, right? As the movie mm-hmm. goes on. The opening shot was was very remarkable with the colors and the blurriness and the haze. It kind of set the tone because to me i never came out of that haze you're driving um, into a dream the whole the whole entire time i'm still in that in the car looking through the wet windshield but then like uh, they had this really cool shot of the car driving up and the, the camera picks it up driving in, in the parks and it lands and then it focuses on the people coming out of the car and then it pulls back and you see this beautiful uh cottage house you know, and that shot was just really just well done and just so pretty. Yeah, I agree with you on that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. 
Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let's do favorite scenes. Grace, did you have a favorite scene in Discreet Charm? The soldier in the tea house, uh, when he just comes up to them and starts randomly telling them his life story and they're just like, Okay. I just I love how the characters just accept all these crazy events as if it's normal. Because if that were me, I'd be like, who is this guy? What the hell is going on? But they're just like, oh, what a charming story. <laughs> and that story actually has the most horror in it of any part of the movie, yeah. right? When I first watched it, that was what really confused me. I was like, what is this genre? What am I watching right now? Because <laughs> that is the most horrific. And then there's nothing really gory like that in the rest of the film. Right. There's a ghost of the man's mom. And mm-hmm. then the dead father, you see his face half blown off. And he's like rotting. It was That also made me <laughs> feel kind of how the eye did. The razor on the eye. Yeah. Little Shenandoah moment. Yeah. Kylie, what about you? I'm going to give you a second pick. That actually was also, that story was my favorite scene. Oh, wow. um, I think just for the same reasons that I, I just love the spirituality of this one, like the Victorian kind of spirituality. I just thought it was so funny and so awful. And why is he telling these women this, that he did this crime? And like, he's so okay with it. Yeah, it blew my mind, but it was great. Just to, for our audience, the ghost mom tells him where the poison is in the house to poison the stepfather. Yeah, it's like, uh, you should definitely like not go to military school. You should go to a psychiatrist, for sure. <laughs> but I was like, okay, you know what? It's a, it's a dream. It's fine. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Jake, what about you? Did you have a favorite scene? I think the scene that like freaked me out the most, ironically, was the scene where they're at the dinner and then like the curtain opens. That's my favorite scene like, in the movie. The people in the audience are like, we got you. You know what I mean? But then the man from the orchestra pit is feeding the lines and he just starts saying the lines. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the viewer can see that they're on a stage, it's so evident that they're in a set. Like the floor is marked and it's just like this weird shit on the walls. I was like, what is going on? I read that those were actually like reoccurring dreams that Boonwell would have, like being on stage, forgetting his lines and then meeting his dead cousin in the street. And then there was one more, oh, a dream of waking up to see his dead parents staring at him. So I really love how he includes his dreams because I'm also really inspired by my dreams. But mm-hmm. I'm like, nobody wants to hear about this. Exactly. Yeah, those are nightmares, girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that one where he's on the empty street that looks like a like a back lot or a studio set, it's so mm-hmm. odd because you hear the sound of people even though it's completely empty. And then the colors are kind of pastel-y on the walls of the, the mm. city there. And that, I mean, I've had dreams where I've run into people that have died. 
And so it resonates so hard with me, those moments. And the idea of somebody going into a place and you don't follow them in and then you kind of lose them in the dream, right? You're never going to catch up to them again or find them. Mm -hmm. And it nags at you kind of, to me, that dream logic was like pristine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guy, after three viewings, did you have a scene that you enjoyed seeing the second and third time? Well, after they found out that the restaurant owner had died, they didn't say, sorry for your loss. They didn't say, oh, oh, that's terrible. Or here, have some money. Nothing. They were just like, oh, we can't eat here. Yeah, uh, let's roll. Like, kind of disgusted, if anything. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. Uh, hey, look, can I get a ride home? Can you just take me home real quick? <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, it's crazy. David, what about you? Did you have a favorite scene now that you've seen this over God knows how many decades? Yeah. So my favorite scene is also the stage scene uh, where suddenly the curtains lifted up and they're like on stage. Uh, I love the way the, uh, you know, the prompters tell you, like trying to tell them their lines. And my feeling when I watch that scene is like, say your line, say your line. I'm, I have, for some reason, I'm identifying with that prompter. It's like, why aren't you saying your line? And he's all sweaty. But, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but I think one of the things that's fascinating about that scene is the reaction, which is pretty much most of the, the couples and the priests are embarrassed to be exposed. Right. Yeah, and they, they start get out of there. They're looking like, and they're trying to kind of sneak off stage and the audience is kind of getting disgruntled and starting to rumble a little bit. Right. The audience is not happy and they're slinking off. Um, <laughs> but so if, since that one was taken though, the other favorite scene I have is the uh, soldiers have occupied the house of this, this very nice house. And uh, they're saying, oh, the battle has happened. You know, we must go to the battle. It's urgent. And then the corporal says, oh, but I had a dream I'd like to tell you about. And they go, oh, well. And the commander says, well, <laughs> we have to hear this dream then. And so they stop for like 10 minutes while he tells this dream. And then he, he says, oh, wait, I had another dream too. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. That's enough. No, we don't yeah. have time we'll for We'll save nothing. that one for later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that one too. It's funny, but also... Um, this thing about dreams being important and that, you know, Buñuel really wants you to pay attention to things that you're being told all your life not to pay attention to, which extends to a lot of political and socioeconomic things as well as stuff like dreams um, and the way things aren't quite working the way they're supposed to. You know, that's I, I love that stuff. And, you know, it's to me, it like leads to Monty Python and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Monty Python are very surreal and they've picked up a lot on this kind of humor, which I love. Good call. Yeah, I felt, yeah. That, I felt that. I felt that too. You've guys been saying that that there's like dream scenes and then there's like reality scenes, and I didn't. I think the whole thing's a dream. I mean, I don't. I'm maybe maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I kind of had a hard time separating reality from mm. the dream world. There are moments where you're like, maybe this is going to connect to reality now, and then it just becomes a dream. I could never find those lines. I think Boonwell is making fun of us for even trying to make linear yeah. sense out of a movie. And what's interesting about Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is as it goes on, it gets more and more dreamlike. You start getting the shots of them walking in the middle of nowhere, right, down the country road. And then you get to the point where they actually are waking up for dreams. One of my favorite scenes is one of the ones that's the most kind of contemporary for the times and political is where Fernando Ray, who's the main bourgeois guy with the goatee, who became famous the year before in America for the French connection, where he played quote unquote frog number one, another drug dealer from France. And 
he's um, this ambassador from this third world Latin American country, which clearly is an awful, awful corrupt country. And he's at one of the parties about three quarters of the way through the movie, and people start calling him on it. And they say, oh, you know, but isn't your country highest in poverty? Didn't it rise by 30%? And they're all saying these kind of negative things. And finally, the host of the party, the captain who had invited them there, is really insulting him. And it becomes like a slap across the face from the captain. And and Fernando Ray pulls out a gun and shoots him in the middle of the party. And then... Yeah, I thought that was really ironic because right before that happens, the guy says, people in your country are known for doing violence on the drop of a hat. <laughs> and he's denying you know? it, right? No, no. Like, no, 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 no. I think he gets slapped and then bam, 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 you know, shoots him with the thing. And then it turns out it's a dream, but the guy waking up from the dream isn't him. It's the other, like the shorter French guy who's been, you know, one of the, one of the couples for the whole time. I thought it was interesting because when he dreamed that he like dreamed the part where Fernando and his wife are like scheduling their next meetup. And I was like, Oh, he dreamed about his wife and Fernando having an affair too. He put that in there as well. It's so funny. Cause that whole thing where Fernando Ray is trying to have an affair with his wife's sister, right? So that's his wife's sister. And he, they can't quite pull it off, right? They keep getting interrupted, which then becomes two movies later in Budwell's final movie. The whole plot of the movie, Obscure Object of Desire, is Fernando Ray is a wealthy guy who's desperately trying to sleep with this one woman for the entire movie, constantly being interrupted. And the kicker is that Budwell has that woman played by two completely different actresses with completely different physiology. With no logic as to when one actress plays or the other actress plays. There's no logic. That's kind of how my dreams are, though. Like, the person in my dream, I know who it's supposed to be, but they do not look like that. But I'm like, that's my yeah, mom, that's but her. it's like yeah. a blob. <laughs> Any other scenes that stood out to anybody in particular that they want to mention before we uh, move on? I think all the scenes with the woman who's, like, drunk all the time... <laughs> That's my girl. Wait, which one was she? Was she the shorter blonde or the? Yeah, with she was like the one that her was hair's like... all mussed up and she wants a dry martini really bad. Mm. Yeah, and she's puking a lot and stuff. Yeah. She's always. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was oh, the rudest one. We're messing one. up yeah. this glamorous vibe for everyone here and I'm like so here for it. And her <laughs> hair is just like, her hair is crusty and her outfits are a little strange and she's just like. I don't know. There's something about her. I was like, I want to be friends with this girl. <laughs> <laughs> also, like the the arrest scene where they got arrested, and All then the women scenes. start the women start complaining, and they get arrested too. Yeah, none of them thinks they can be arrested. Yeah, and the best was the drunk ladies like flailing. Yeah, the only one really fighting the cops is the one that's like always trying to drink the martini, and she's like flying off the handle. So good. Yeah. And then they go to this weird dream sequence in jail. Okay. Did you notice in the dream, he's torturing a young, quote unquote, terrorist suspect, right? Right. And the way they torture him is they wire up a piano with electricity and they put him in the piano. Did that remind anyone of a short that they might have seen earlier? Yes, yes, yes. And the piano on the donkey was, was supposedly made from a parable or a children's book that Salvador Dali painted. So when they get arrested, were you kind of like rooting for them to be arrested? Do you think like justice finally? Or were you like, no, it's interrupting a dinner. Rich criminals all want to go to jail. I want to see them go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. They'll never finish dinner. We know that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you remember Fernando Ray is dying under the table and he reaches up for a last piece of food? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's how it gets what, what is that about greed? Is that about greed? Is that a statement about greed? About appetites? What maybe? is going on in this movie? <laughs> Nobody can indulge the whole time. Like the rich bourgeois, like they never get to actually like indulge and eat and like actually you know make love in their bedroom. Like they can't. They can never get there. Right. They can never get to the affair. Yeah. They're always thwarted. But um, at the very end, I guess, Fernando Ray gets to wolf down some piece of meat or a sandwich or something in his kitchen with his fingers. And it's like, that's his one chance to like get a meal. But it's funny, Kylie, because I think maybe what Boonwell is doing is trying to kind of correct the imbalance. Because as we know, these people get to eat whatever they want. They get to do whatever they want, you know, sleep with who they want, do all these kinds of things. I mean, are we living in discreet charm of the bourgeoisie? My question. I think we are. I am. Oh, yeah. But we've always been. Oh, I don't like that. A little less glamorous. But it's not that discreet, though. Like, we all know about it. It's just they never actually get caught about it. Like, nothing is discreet about it, and they have no charm. Everyone knows about it. But what's going to happen? Probably nothing. Yeah, but I think surrealism, you know, it's rejecting the outer reality so that you can get a closer look at the inner reality, which is a reality that actually is kind of obvious to everybody if they think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Grace, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the making of and reception for yes. the Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I was really shocked to learn the budget was only 800000 That sounds very small for me. Today's dollars would be what? About eight million, maybe. I don't 10? know. I, I didn't convert that. No, I think. Well, yeah, not ten. I mean, it was a pretty inexpensive film and shot very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was two months. I want to say. I don't know why I didn't write that down, but it was very short. And I learned that Boonwell shot very few takes and often edited the film in camera during production which just sounds like wizardry. I don't even understand that. Maybe when you make 32 films before that, you get a feel. Yeah, the practice. And the film was a box office hit in Europe and the U.S. and critically praised. Boonwell later said that he was actually really disappointed with most film critics' analysis of the film. And he didn't attend his own press screening in L.A. and told a reporter at Newsweek that his favorite characters in the film were the cockroaches. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes me think, is he referring to the bourgeois or like the actual cockroaches? And he was also famously indifferent towards awards and jokingly told a reporter that he had already paid 25K in order to win the Oscar, (laughs) which I thought was really hilarious. And it ended up winning the Oscar and Best Original Screenplay. Every time a metaphor becomes too obvious, he kind of undercuts it because he doesn't really want you to say, oh, this is about. He really wants to say, I mean, he said himself, like, these films aren't about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't bother making sense out of them. But, you know, he must know that people have to try to make sense yeah, of it. Yeah, it's like a an urge can't get rid of. Right. And plus, it's not like they're totally random. I mean, you know, he's saying a lot of things in the film that are pretty, you know, clear. Yeah. He's saying them in an oblique way. So I feel like he's playing with people. It's like he's saying, oh, my film doesn't mean anything. And he gets upset if people try to ascribe a meaning. But... It does mean something, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't want to be pinned down. Jake, did you get a chance to do any research on the Surrealists, the original movement? 
Yeah, so surrealism was an artistic movement that basically started after World War One, and it's kind of encompassing all the things that we were talking about and that it's about relinquishing control to the subconscious and allowing your mind to speak. And um, it was kind of like inherently tied to these political movements like anarchy and stuff like that. And it, it was really centered in Paris and these are both French films, so that makes a lot of sense. But people that belong to the surrealist movement of artists like didn't appreciate being called surrealists. And I believe that Dali and Bunuel were really young at the time when this yeah. began. And I think a lot of these artistic movements have a lot to do about youth culture and the way in which the youth are like leading always the revolution and like fed up. The punk rock movement of the mid-1970s, like 76, 77, particularly in England, was super influenced by the what they called the situationalists and the surrealists. And they were really trying to shake up society and hold a, like a cracked mirror up to society in some way. Mm -hmm. And it infuriated people. You know, it, it made the establishment crazy and trying to ban them and, you know, succeeding in some cases. And it's just history repeating itself because that's what they did to the surrealists in the 20s, too, and the 40s. When you look at surrealist art, like themes in it are really like grotesque and things that you don't want to think about or things you don't want to look at. And there's blasphemy. So you ask yourself, you know, what's the value of blasphemy? And that's a lot of value, right? It's about um, making people think a different way and questioning authority. Mm -hmm. The whole time I was thinking about my favorite movie character of all time, Divine, and how like she was shocking just for the sake of being shocking, just to like piss off the normies. That's the vibe I'm getting from these filmmakers, that they're like viewing the general public as kind of like, y'all wouldn't understand this. And then when they did, they were like, damn, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, yeah. I think that's uh, right on the money. Um, David, is there anything else you want to add about Louis Bula that we haven't covered here? Buñuel uh, was involved in this Spanish conflict between the left-wing Republicans and the right-wing nationalists. Franco was in charge of the right-wing nationalist army. He became dictator later on when he won the war. Buñuel became a communist and a supporter of the left-wing Republican government. Decades later, he renounced communism because he didn't want to really be identified that way. He also didn't want to be identified as a surrealist, which someone brought up. So after Lodge d'Or, he didn't make any surrealist films for a very long time. He had a very, very involved career, a stint in Hollywood, a stint in New York working for the Museum of Modern Art, uh, making lots of promos and short documentaries. And he ended up in Mexico where he made 21 films. And they're interesting films, but they're very varied. I mean, most of them are melodramas. The two films he made that are really significant in his Mexican period, which lasted 17 years, were Los Olvidatos, The Forgotten. And it's about very, very poor children left roaming the streets in Mexico City. And this directly inspired films like Pichot and City of God. And that's one of the first. All the films have been made about the poor. Before that, he had made a film, uh, a short film, about very, very, very poor peasants in Spain, just abject, horrible poverty. And then it was narrated by a guy that sounded like he was doing a holiday travelogue. Really weird contrast. <laughs> it was funny. And a lot of people think it's the first mockumentary. I don't know. The film, by the way, is a total flop. Um, the government didn't want to show it. Theaters didn't want to show it. It closed after three days. The critics all hated it. And it only lived because he won Best Director. He was able to come back to Spain because Franco 
was getting old and he decided he needed to support Spanish culture. And Buñuel by now was actually a highly regarded figure, whereas he had been not highly regarded when he was forced to leave. He, he never went back to Spain because he was afraid Franco would have him killed or jailed, which he probably would have. But, you know, 30 years later, Franco was like, oh, come on back. You've, you've won all these awards. You know, uh, we need our Spanish heroes. And so he immediately came back and bit the hand that fed him by making a film called Viridiana, which was highly critical of the government and of the church. And uh, Franco immediately banned it. I think I read somewhere that he made propaganda films for the Spanish government. Was that right? Yes. So when uh, the Spanish Civil War finally broke out, he joined the Republicans and worked for the Republicans. And they had him making propaganda films. He was sent to Hollywood by the Republican government of Spain to advise Hollywood about how to make films about the Spanish Civil War. There was a lot of American interest because people like Hemingway and a lot of famous Americans were going to help fight uh, for the Republicans against fascism. And this is before World War II, so it's it's really the beginning of fascism in Europe. Chaplin was a big friend of uh, Buñuel's, and Buñuel actually sold him some jokes for The Great Dictator. Wow. Uh, Yeah. It's crazy, Um, the connections in there. And it saved him because his family was almost starving at that point where Chaplin bought those jokes. There's kind of a companion film that predates uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie called The Exterminating Angel. I think it's about 10 years earlier. It's in black and white. And again, it's about a bunch of bourgeois people having dinner together. But it's the opposite situation where they all come to this one house. And for some reason, something keeps them from leaving every time somebody tries to leave. So they're there for days or sleeping on the floor. They're kind of descending into barbarism. And one thing it's important to say about Buñuel is you might think, well, here's a marginal guy. His films were enormously popular. He only made a couple of films that ever lost money. You know, he made a lot of films, more than 50 films. So uh, he made huge hits like Belle de Jour. But, you know, pretty much anything he made is worth seeing. They're all very interesting. But definitely when you get to the 60s, when he's in his 50s and 60s, and he's just That's when he hit his stride. Yeah, yeah. I think it's time for us to sum up... um, The question I always ask is not only where you put this on the star system for yourself, but also who, if anybody, would you recommend this movie to? And I'm going to start with Jake. Um, I would make this a three and a half um, for many reasons. And I would also recommend it to all of my film school friends. There's a lot of people I know for a fact have not seen this. And I think it's thought-provoking And it just really introduces you to a a different style of filmmaking that I had never really seen before. And it almost like allowed me to imagine like what my style of filmmaking would be if I had one and just like open possibilities, you know, so I would definitely recommend it to other film students, like young film students. Nice. Kylie, how about you? I would probably give it, I was like a 3.3 for me if I can do that. I don't know if I put it that high, but I do think it deserves more than a three, which I might give it upon the first viewing. I think it's, I wasn't giving it enough. You got to get off the fence. You got to get off the fence, Kylie. Okay, then I'll do three. I'll do a 3.5. I'll do 3.5. Because I feel like if I mull it over, I would do a 3.5 instead of a three. But no, I would probably recommend it, probably same as Jake, just anyone who's looking for a a more scholarly film, I guess you call it that, just something to challenge you and to kind of get you out of the box of classical filmmaking and tell you what limits you can push. Nice. Guy, how about you? Well, I usually say I recommend any movie to everybody. Everybody should watch a movie, good or bad. 
Except for this one. Um, <laughs> this one, you, yeah, this one's tough. This is like, a, if you don't like subtitled movies, then then you're gonna hate this one. And so this one, I, I, w- I would have to limit it to film school students. What would you give it? It's a three and a half. I give it a three and a half stars. It was awesome. Oh my god! Even though I don't, I don't get it, it was still it was still badass. I appreciate that. Grace, you're next. Uh, well, you guys just took all the words out of my mouth. Uh, I would recommend it to definitely film lovers. I don't think the average person could really sit through this. <laughs> not because it's not good, just because it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, really. And I would also give it a three and a half. Wow. It did really inspire me. Like Jake said, it kind of like reignited that spark um, and made me realize that I can use my dreams as inspiration. Yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) All right, David, your shot. To me, the film does not have to be intellectual. It's only intellectual if you overthink it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't have to overthink it. Um, It's funny. So I think anybody that can open their minds, you know, anyone who has an artistic bent, who likes to look at things uh, with an open mind, think differently. I guess some people would have to get stoned to be able to accept this movie. <laughs> Not me. I don't really like getting stoned. I don't need to be stoned to enjoy this film. I can enjoy it just the way I am. But, uh, you know, this film is about, <laughs> um, you know, giving up all this crap that we're loaded with all day long about how things are supposed to be, how we're supposed to think. This drills down below that to just this sort of essence of what's really going on inside human beings. That's what Freud loved to talk about maybe more than anything. Civilization is discontents. Everyone hates civilization, but everyone needs it. We, we're dependent on it. And that creates a great deal of antipathy inside us, uh, which I think we deal with pretty much every day. Then you can enjoy this movie, and that's what I recommend you do. I recommend that you give it a try and just accept it for what it is and try to enjoy it. If you can't, Shut it on off. So you you can decide if it's for you. I'm going to give it a four, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it's a three and a half movie uh, in terms of its quality and everything. It's just not a perfect movie. It, it was shot like a TV movie. But nobody has managed to make a feature film like this. I mean, how many people are interested in surrealism and wanted to make the great surrealist film? And there are some out there, but I think this maybe is the best of them. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's a hard thing to do to not make sense, actually, because we're trained all our lives to make sense. And Mm -hmm. this guy trained all his life to figure out how not to make sense, and he's good at it. And you can learn a lot from watching this film. And the main reason I'll give it for to close is because it's inspirational. When I saw it, I saw it, I guess, when I was 13, 14, whatever, it inspired me definitely to want to go out and do something silly. Um, and I've seen it inspire a lot of people, and I still feel inspired when I watch it to to break some of the boundaries a little bit and get out. Definitely. All right. Well, so my thoughts about this. Dave and I have been talking offline a bit about how happy we are about how this podcast has been going. And uh, you know, we love the four of you being here. We love the other guests that we've had as guest panelists along the way. But, you know... Uh, again, being on the uh, senior side of things over here with David, uh, as far as the group goes, I just have to say that I'm very proud that you guys all rose to the challenge of these two movies. And the fact that you're all giving Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie three and a half stars is a little bit mind-blowing to me. 
because this is a movie that could f- potentially fall on its face if you don't catch the wavelength. You know, it, it, it is the most challenging movie of all the movies. More challenging, I think, than The Third Man. More challenging in some ways than Brazil, which clearly was some influence from it. Um, you know, and so the fact that everybody related to it and found the humor, found the uh, whatever was sort of being criticized and embraced the dreamlike nature of it is just kind of rewarding to me. So for me, it's a journey, the movie. And it's such an interesting journey because it has the thinnest, thinnest narrative thread. And every once in a while, it's like he's taken a match to the narrative thread and burned it. And it kind of starts again. And then he burns it again. And yet we stay with it. And I think the only reason that a movie like this works is because at his core, there's a morality. And unlike the more obvious or Hollywood type or classical type filmmaking, where you put the morality on the screen and at the end, we all know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and someone shows up at the end of Psycho and tells us what happened to Norman or whatever. Louis doesn't care about any of that, right? He basically is anti-church in a very kind of specific way for how it, how the rich use the church to prop themselves up, right? He's kind of anti-bourgeoisie appetites because all their appetites are at the expense of everybody around them. There's a scene where they invite the chauffeur in for a toast. That was, and they that give was him, one of the scenes I was going to mention. Yeah, and they basically do it just to basically mock him when he leaves. See, he's a proletarian. He doesn't know anything about wine. He's just a savage, you know. These people don't give a shit about anybody but themselves and their own pleasures. They don't even care that they're cheating on their wife with the wife's sister as long as it brings it satisfies their appetites. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. only way you can do this is if you're a filmmaker that has a such a strong moral core that at some level is just like rock solid. So that you can do the surreal stuff. You can put it in a wrapper that doesn't make rational sense. But we all got it. Like in a different way, we all kind of got what was going on. And the only reason it's not a four-star movie for me is that I've enjoyed seeing it three times over the course of 40 years. You know, there's other movies that we've shown, like The Third Man, that I've seen like eight times. And I'm sure I'll see another few times, hopefully. Um, I just, to me, the repeatability on this one is a little bit more infrequent. But I still think it's a great movie. And I am so pleased at how it's been received by uh, the Generation Film crowd over here. Great pick. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank so you. So what yeah. was your score? Oh, that's a three and a half for me. Yeah, so it's a average is about three and a half. Nice. If you want to watch Shen Andalou and Delusion Dog, you can do so for free on YouTube in various versions with various frame rates. The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is available to rent on Apple, Amazon, Google, YouTube, Vudu, DirecTV, and Spectrum. Speaking of YouTube, you can find Generation Film there with clips and stills and on audio only, wherever you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. If you like our show, please tell your friends to rate and review so others can find us as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production, and I'd like to thank our panelists, Grace Chapman, Jake Flowers, Guy Lewis, and Kylie LaRue, as well as my intrepid co-host, David Tausick. Our executive producers are myself, Mark Netter, and my partner at Electrocast, Peter Rafelson. Our producer is David Tausick. Our editor is Marcus Campito. Please join us on our next episode, where we will round out our first season with our 12th selection. And it's a big one. 
Orson Welles' Hollywood directing debut, The Legendary Citizen Kane. So will our generation of panelists agree with scores of film critics over the past 82 years that this is arguably the greatest movie of all time? Well, the only way you're going to find out is when you listen in or watch us on the next episode of Generation Film. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.